Hello, wherever you are in the world today, welcome to Beyond the Art in our series, The Stories That Carry Us. I'm your host, Craig Beaumont Flynn, a citizen of the Cherokee Nation and the Delaware Tribe of Indians. In each episode, we will discuss with various Native American artists, influencers, art leaders, and everyone in between their experiences, the communities they serve, and the translation and interpretation of the Native American art world today. Well, today we have Lisa Rutherford, a Cherokee artist with the Cherokee Nation. Uh, welcome to the show, Lisa. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Fantastic. So uh, look, give our audience a little bit of background about uh, who you are, uh, what type of art form you actually create, and what really inspires you and what led you to where you are now as an artist. Well, I started, I've always had art in my life. And uh, I think my grandmother was the first one that exposed me to art when I was probably about five years old. Was and she an artist? She did oil painting. Okay. And she actually let me play with her oil paints and her uh, oil pastels when like I was a little paint? bitty kid. <laughs> yeah. And so that kind of uh, lit a fire in me. And um, then I never got to take art in school. We had... Oh, we would have a craft every now and then in, in elementary school, but it wasn't until I was a junior high school when I had my first art class. So um, that teacher is the only teacher in my high school that encouraged me to go to college. Wow. And he talked to me into, he was my first art teacher, but he talked to me into it. And I think the big selling point was I could be an art major and I could take more art classes. So, um, I did. I ended up changing my major. Uh, my advisor told me if I didn't want to be a high school teacher, I needed to change my major because I wasn't good enough to make a living as an artist. So, <laughs> little they know. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> so here I am. But um, I got back into art back in uh, 2000, early 2005, late 2004. I worked on a public art installation with Bill Glass Jr. at his studio and several other artists. Mm -hmm. And I credit him with getting me back involved in clay. I had ceramics in college, but it was wheel thrown. It wasn't the traditional hand-built, pit-fired. It wasn't Cherokee pottery. So mm -hmm. um, we worked on that installation, and it's in Chattanooga. And after that ended... I worked with them about four months. Of course, this is, they had been working on it for over a year, like 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So uh, I took pottery with Jane Ostie, and she taught me traditional pottery. And um, I just kind of went from there. <clears throat> the pottery led me to the textiles. Now, Cherokee worldview is more circular than linear. Correct, so everything is correct. related and connected. So correct. Um, we went to a pottery conference and they had pottery that had twined textiles imprinted into the clay. So I wanted to do that for mine. So I got a hold of a book and I learned how to do twining and I just did a little square just so I could print my pottery. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, I could make twine bags. Well, I could, I learned about the twined skirts and the pre-contact clothing and the feather capes. Right. And I met Eastern Man artists, and they were not wearing, uh, like it, here, everyone wore the tear dress. Mm -hmm. And it's not a historic dress. It actually dates to like 1969 or 70, but they think it is because they of the Triple Tears drama. Right, right. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I got more interested in the historic clothing, and I made my own clothing and started demonstrating I got into living history then, which was a lot of fun. I learned that they will pay me to come and demonstrate these skills in period clothing and talk to people. And getting paid is a sure thing, where if I pack right. up, go to an art market, I could sit there for four days, work my tail off, and maybe not make enough to pay for the hotel. So um, I still do that, but I enjoy the living history as well. Mm -hmm. And I finally... I always worked full time trying to balance art and work. So it was very frustrating. I felt like I was rushing through my projects. 
And I finally, um, after a couple of part-time jobs, I finally got, I realized this is not what I want to do. I want to make art. I had saved up some money and I finally started my own studio at home. And this had been a dream for 20, 30 years. Mm -hmm. So you found and, your calling. <laughs> yeah. And I ended up, um, I was forced to replace my what, 16 year old car. And so I've got a car payment now, a low paying part-time job. And I quit my job. <laughs> <laughs> you took oh, the well, risk. Yeah. So I've been a full-time self-employed artist for a little over a year now. Congratulations. That's fantastic. Yeah. Thanks. So what is your ultimate goal in being a Cherokee Native American artist? Um, one of the things, especially in the living history aspect, is I want people to know we're still here, mm -hmm. that we are not relics of the past, which is kind of ironic as I'm dressed in 18th century clothing. <laughs> but that is a way that you can relate to people. You can talk to them about what our art was like then. Uh, the pottery was utilitarian and then you can explain to them how it has evolved and how we're still a very vibrant culture today and our art is going in new directions with new technology um art's really changing right now right it seems like uh, the world is looking at native american art as the it factor right now we're on an ups upswing so to speak we're being recognized and it seems to go through a transition every 10 to 20 years do you think this this transition this uh, it factor is going to stay this time or is it going to be a passing phase in another 10 years you know something new and something exciting i mean we've always mm -hmm. been here but still i think it ebbs and flows like anything mm -hmm. um one of the things that i've noticed probably in the late eighties and early nineties, I used to make beaded earrings. And this was before I was really doing the pottery and things like that, but that's how I supplemented my income. And that style of earrings went out of style. And I kept thinking one of these days, this is going to come back. And sure enough, it has really come back and I can sell them as fast as I can make them now. <laughs> But the earrings are my stress relief. I can sit there and count colorful beads out and and it kind of helps me distract from whatever's stressing me. Mm -hmm. In but, in some of your pieces, do you feel you're you're grabbing from the from the past and then reinterpreting it into a date today uh, form? Or are you taking historical icons and graphics and instilling them into your art pieces? I do both. I do some things. I've done several items for museum exhibits. So those I'm going to make them with the materials as close as possible to what would have been used at the time, the techniques. And um, I will try to make them as close to that time period as is possible. But then I might take the skirt from the late 1700s and mm -hmm. use different fabrics and different colors the materials that were not available then and change those up and wear them for contemporary wear mm -hmm. so i just made myself a pair of moccasins for a museum reception i mean an art market reception excuse yeah. me and they told us to dress to impress so <laughs> i know there's going to be native designers there and, and everybody really dresses up so my skirt didn't work out. It looks terrible on me and I hate the fabric, but um, I made a pair of moccasins. I said, I want, I need black shoes to go with this outfit. So I made, I got black deer skin uh -huh. and I made them high top with the flats folded up around my leg and they look pretty cool. So Are we gonna see I like Lisa, to do things like that. Are we going to see Lisa Rutherford moccasins sometime soon? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I don't like to make them for other people because I can't fit them. Oh, <laughs> true. I, I, yeah, because they are formed to the specific foot, not, mm -hmm. you know, uh, the U.S. standards or foot size, the measurement of such. So, yeah, well, you never know. <laughs> yeah, well, I consider myself a potter, not, I don't consider myself a designer, but mm -hmm. um, I, 
maybe textile artists would fit, but uh, primarily pottery. Although I think I'm probably at this point better known for the feather capes because there's not many people making them. And I think I was the first one here to make one with the historic methods. Mm -hmm. Now there had been some made with cloth and other more modern materials um, several years back, but I am hand tying the net or twining the feathers into the textile like they were historically done. Right. So what inspires you? Is it the historical storytelling of the pieces themselves? Are you inspired that you get something, you see something visually that kind of you want to reinterpret and translate into uh, a clay piece? Um, yeah, I do get inspired. I, I can look at some of the old pieces, the artifacts, and they will inspire me. Or uh, one of the uh, one of the pots I made was inspired when I'm driving down I-40 listening to Stevie Ray Vaughan and Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Hey, that's inspirational. <laughs> yeah, there's a pot called Nightbird Flying, because they both did that song. And, right. And everybody looks at it. I don't, I don't think a lot of people understand that it's actually a song, but it did have a bird design on it. Very nice. Um, but I do like, I, I look at the old pieces and everyone says, oh, you have to make it just like this. Mm -hmm. We only have a small percentage of surviving artifacts, so we don't know what they all look like. Correct. And one of the things that really, um, kind of opened my eyes is when I worked as a tour guide and historic interpreter at the Diligua village, which was a 1710 Cherokee village. And a lot of people kind of discount that job, but I learned, I learned how to read my audience. I learned public speaking. I learned how to keep someone's attention. You see the little kid over here, maybe not paying attention. You, First of all, when you see that little troublemaker kid, you find out their name. And then <laughs> you can look over, Kevin, what do you think about this? And um, But I learned to make a lot of different um, arts or different skills. Mm -hmm. I sat next to the Flint Nappers, so they taught me how to, um, to nap an arrowhead. or I'm not good at it, but I know how to do it. Mm -hmm. So we just did a lot of things like that, but I could see practically living there through the whole day. We didn't have any um, any modern things out there. We were just out there in the village. So we made everything we needed and it was it was really fun. And I started to see how you can ask five different people to make the same object and it's all gonna be different, but it's still gonna be like a Cherokee moccasin or a blowgun or whatever. It's mm -hmm. gonna, everyone has their own take on it. So Correct. they have their I own think, connection and own story that they're trying to tell. Yeah. So that job was a lot of fun and it taught me a lot. Um, and it also made me think about why do we th do things the way we do them? Because we might be out of something in the village and we needed to make something. Um, trade shirt. Yeah, functional yeah, purpose. The, yeah. The linen trade shirts. I used to wonder, why do they have these little reinforcements and these little gussets on them? After you work out there all summer making them and I mean wearing them and then repairing them, you see why they're there. There's a reason for everything. Mm-hmm. You, you mentioned uh, the educational component that you didn't study art until late in life. Do you feel that that's a missing factor in today's society, especially among Native American communities, that we're not, we're losing our el elders daily um, and the connection to our past. And sometimes that is taught through the communities or family and passed down. But the educational aspect, you know, schools right now don't have an art program without instilling that and having that, do you think there's a possibility of some of the, the connection we have to the past to bring it to the future is going to be lost? I worry about that. Um, 
just looking at some of the people that I've studied with, the, some of the Cherokee National Treasures, the pottery after the Trail of Tears, uh, we really weren't doing any pottery here in Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. We didn't need it. We uh, were trying to survive immediately after removal. But Anna Mitchell, she started studying and she wanted to learn the pottery. She didn't have the internet. She didn't have anyone to teach her. So she went out on her own. Of course, they were still doing it in North Carolina, right, but right. it had evolved more to a shiny black pottery rather than our traditional. So they kind of lost that method with the stamping it with the carved wood paddles. And Anna went and visited them and learned more about the pottery. So she pretty much revived it here. And uh, I had some classes with her. Uh, my teacher was Jane Austy and Jane learned from Anna. So most of us that have been doing pottery for a while here were either taught by Anna or one of her students. And that so impressed me that one person could do that. Right, right. And then Martha Berry started studying the beadwork. And we've noticed that it really kind of faded out right after the Trail of Tears. There was kind of a golden age of it. Um, but there were even people trying to say we didn't do beadwork. Right. <laughs> but she brought it back. So do you think it's part of the uh, tribal's community's responsibility to pursue in educating the youth and developing even further in the next generation, the next generation. So our connection to the past and what we use and, you know, it's being used in different formats today is again, continued and not left to extinction, I guess. Yeah. Uh I really do. I know Cherokee Nation keeps saying that art is going to be the next big initiative they work on. They've worked on the language. They've done um, mm. a lot of really wonderful things with the language program. And I'm sitting here saying, hey, what about us? We need a new right, building. Right. We, need, we need a makerspace. And we do have a, a really great program through the Cherokee National Treasures where you can't just take a pottery class and learn in a day or a weekend or Two weeks, you're not going to master that art. Mm -hmm. You're going to learn basics and be doing beginner level art. So we've actually had people that uh, get to that point and start teaching others, and you're not advancing and mastering this art. So this mentor program allows the treasures to be paid to teach, and it's free to the students. So this is a long-term class, and I, I studied sculpture with Bill Glass. I studied weaving with Dorothy Ice, and um, shell carving with Nagoti Scott. So right now I'm really concerned and I brought it up with one of our council members that we don't have a shell carver who was a Cherokee national treasure who can teach. Right. Our remaining weaver, uh, she said that, I don't know if it's temporary or not, but she canceled her upcoming class. She just wasn't up to it. So she's getting close to 90, I think. So Wow. Uh, so we've only got one other teacher. She doesn't have a place to teach. So we need to do something. We need to certify some of these students or mm -hmm. something because there's no Cherokee National Treasure for Feather Capes. I'm a Cherokee National Treasure and I could teach, but mine is for pottery. So I'm not allowed to teach Feather Capes. And so, we have to continue it forward or either it's lost. Yeah. I mean, yeah, make me take a test. Make <laughs> Make me prove myself. So, but, um, what, yeah. what pieces? Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. If you had, oh, that's more to, okay. Is your is your Native American and Cherokee heritage influenced you a lot then in your art, or do you um, take it from everyday aspects and everything that you see and kind of incorporate into more of a Native American interpretation? I guess so to speak. Well, I guess pretty much everything I do is Native American, so right. <laughs> it, it's to me I can't separate it. I don't know. Um, even growing up, a lot of the things that we did and things that I learned, I didn't know that we did it because we were Cherokee. I just knew that's the way we did things. Mm -hmm. So um, it's really hard to to separate those things. So, what really motivates you? Um... And really, 
I guess, drives your creativity when you start creating? I just have this need to know how things, how, how they work, how they were mm-hmm. made. And if I see something, oh, that's really cool. I got to figure out how to do it. So I have, I do a lot of different art forms. But so do you, is there art that you do, the art forms and the various mediums? Are you trying to tell a story? Is it a story that you want to tell or is it a story that you feel as a Native American artist needs to be translated into a wider audience for the non-Native or, or the Native? Sometimes, like um, the recent art market, I did my competition piece was a twine skirt and a feather mm-hmm. cape, but it was a type of feather cape that I'd never made before. And I actually started it as part of my project as an artist in residence at the Institute of American Indian Arts. I applied for a two-week residence and somehow ended up being there a month. I, I <laughs> will have to figure that out. But, and, and it worked out for the best. It really pushed me out of my comfort zone. Mm-hmm. And But when I made that, I, was, I grew up in the era of that Trail of Tears drama, which had the white actors wearing mm-hmm. the body makeup they called it instant indian mm-hmm. they had the awful wigs with the braids and the headbands right and right the women wore the tear dress which the tear dress was created about the same time as the drama in the late 60s so everybody thinks that's what our historic dress was because right. of that drama and i want to pull out the actual things that we would have worn so people have seen the the first style of cape i made i'm like okay there's people that know how to do this. I got to do a different type. I'm going to show this one and how it was made. And making something is the best way to learn about it. Because the first one I made, I ended up taking it apart and starting over like three times mm-hmm. the first few rows of it. But once you start to make something, you feel that connection. And with those that have made it before, you know why they did it. So it's a learning experience, but um, it was it's just maybe part of it is seeking that connection. But I do like the educational component so people can see that we weren't wearing buckskin and feathers all the time. Right, we, right. You know, we had we had fabrics 9000 years ago. Correct. Correct. We they had wool in the 1600s. We had linen. So we weren't I like uh, to... running, a while, running around wild, you know, that interpretation, I think, the, of the Native American culture is so homogen, homogenized that people, you know, think we all had feather headdresses. We all lived in teepees. And there's such a vast array of Native American tribal cultures and communities, uh, but we all get squashed together as one. Yeah. Um, you know, from the East Coast to the West Coast to the Pacific to even the Hawaiian Islands and Alaska and, and throughout Canada. Do you think it's part of an artist's responsibility to tell that story and make a, distin- a distinction that we are different from a Cherokee uh, to a Delaware to a Mohawk to you know, Navajo or Arapaho and so on and so forth? I think so. I, I want people to be aware that there are many, many different cultures and um many different tribes. We all did things differently. We did have some contact, trade, cooperation with each other, but um, I think I, I think our schools are not teaching it, so and I, well, I've noticed when I was at the, the 1710 Village, every day somebody came in and asked me if I lived there. And I'm like, no, I do not live in this tourist attraction with the dirt floors, the and they would ask my friend, um, because it was fenced, it had a chain link fence, and they're not realizing this is to keep them out without paying. What did they think you that and was your reservation? They would, ask, <laughs> they would say, Would you stay here? And, and Tim would tell them, He said, Well, sometimes, sometimes I leave that gate open. And he said, Man, we run this as fast as we can. He said, Of course, I'm getting older now, and I don't get as far as I used to before they catch me. And they would believe him. Oh, my. Oh my! <laughs> yeah, they thought we all were all related to each other, um, and oh, every week or so, somebody would come and say, "Do you know there are Cherokees in North Carolina?" I'm like, "Well, yeah." <laughs> <laughs> so 
I think we have a long way to go to tell our story and for people to understand. You know, I when I tell people and I identify as a Native American, I'm Cherokee in Delaware, and I get that question. You know, do you live on a reservation? Well, do you live in a teepee? And uh, you know, do I wear this or do it? it's like? There's such a blind spot, I think, to the non-native on a global aspect that they still think, you know, running a wild wild in buckskin and, you know, shooting buffalo. and. <laughs> <laughs> well, my, one of my Eastern friends and I and uh, one of our uh, other Cherokee National Treasures, when we were in Washington, D.C., it was 2019, and we're all dressed out. Our hotel is a block and a half from uh, the National Museum of the American Indian, where we were demonstrating for three days, and we all walked back together. So I'm walking. Uh, my friend is wearing a bear claw necklace. He's dressed out as a warrior. He's got a war club in his belt. He's probably maybe had a knife on his neck. And we're mm-hmm. just laughing and joking. And we walk into the hotel and we're standing by the bank of elevators, and there's some opposite. And this small young Asian woman came walking in with, with two small children. And I don't know where she was from, if she was just passing through. She lived in D.C., but she turned and looked at us. And she grabbed those children and ran. And wow. we scared her. <laughs> I thought, well, I don't know where she lives or what, what kind of ideas <laughs> she has about us, but... Three people standing there laughing are not going to hurt you and your children. Right. Oh, wow. So, Hmm. I mean, it kind of makes you feel bad to think that you're scaring someone. Right. (laughs) But I think uh, doing what we do to demonstrate and educate and showing our art, um, I think that helps to dispel some of these rumors and some of those fears because, I mean, it's just some of the things people have said to us are just unbelievable. You would think and, it'd be so different in today's society, but I think it's also the part- mm-hmm. the how we how we are interpreted, and you know, in film and television and storytelling, that we're telling our story, not someone else that's non-native and doesn't have the history or the knowledge or the mm-hmm. cultural background. Uh, that we should be telling our story. And that kind of lies on us, I think, as well as Native Americans, both as an artist and other sectors of what people do, is telling our story and making sure people understand it, uh, that we don't get mm-hmm. uh, pushed under the We're rug. storytellers. Yeah. I mean, that's... We're great storytellers. Exactly. Do you think it's also a key role that an artist has in the global art community, that that story is being told in an appropriate manner, that it's not being told by a non-Native artist interpreting a Native, I guess? Yeah, and we do run into that a lot where Mm -hmm. uh, people are copying the artwork um, or even sometimes you'll see a Cherokee that has not been raised in the culture and they decide they're going to learn art, they take a class, and then they're starting to copy um, Plains art or Northwest coast or they're they're just copying and then they get a hold of the sun circles and human hands book which is southeast iconography right it's not just cherokee and they're just copying out of there and i'm thinking well first of all i could see that you copied it out of a book and you're not doing your own um your own spin on it like mm-hmm. or the accuracy the, you know i mean there's yeah. a lot of things that are relatively uh, sacred to each tribal community yeah nagopti scott told us when we were taking shell carving um he said you know here's some other patterns and symbols that i have drawn and he said if you use these you change it you make it yours and you better be able to tell somebody what it means and why you used it. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you're just copying. Correct. So that really has stuck with me. And I don't think we know what the old symbols mean. Some of them are ceremonial. Um, I've had experience in other artists that there's certain symbols I know are not for me. I don't know why, but they're not for me. Mm-hmm. And if I try to use them, the pot's going to break every time. Hmm. And What's I'm that connection be, value probably as an artist? 
Yeah, I mean, I just know that I can't use, um, I can't even remember now exactly what it is, but um, it was one of those figures that I think came out of the Sun Circles book. Mm -hmm. And I've got another friend that she can't use spiders. I can use the, the spider, the water spider. I use it a lot, but she can't. So hmm. there's reasons. I don't know. Maybe it's a family thing or a clan yeah, thing. A clan, I was going to say maybe it's a clan thing. <laughs> Could be. Yeah. Who knows? It's part of her DNA, I guess. How 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 important do you think is incorporating your self representation into your artwork? I want people to be able to look at that at my work and say, Oh, that's Lisa's work. Oh, this is Cherokee. Um, and I want them to know that it's as accurate as I know how to make it at that time. And of course I'm learning all the time and researching. So some of my early stuff, maybe I thought it was accurate at the time and it's not, but I, I want people to understand to be able to identify Cherokee mm -hmm. art it's also a growth of an artist in your form is continuing to grow. Yeah. Um, so I think that's just a natural flow. Uh, well, we've got technology changing all the time. Right. We've got some fantastic artists. Roy Boney is one of my heroes. He's a, uh, he does a lot of graphic arts, computer generated mm -hmm. stuff. I don't understand half of what he does, but I love his work. <laughs> and, um, I don't know. There's a lot of the newer, younger artists come in. Kendra Swafford, she's fantastic. And Kelly Gonzalez, they're doing, a, you look at their work and you can tell it's theirs. And mm -hmm. it's very contemporary and they're using newer technology. Um, what well, we recently had a Cherokee Comic Con. Correct. Yeah. And I knew nothing about it, but some of my friends were going to be there. So I went and this one young woman came up, uh, she messaged me later and she says, Oh my gosh, you were there. I said, well, yeah, I was there, but not for a long time. And she said, I made a feather cape because of you. And she had created her cosplay with a white feather cape. And she said, thank you so much for telling me about how to do the feathers. And I'm thinking, I can't even remember. I don't know if I directly messaged her or what, but at some point, maybe I just posted how to do it. But she had figured out how to make her own feather cape. And it was not, of course, it wasn't the historically accurate museum stuff, but it was cosplay. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, that is really cool to me that someone can take this very old traditional art form and make it something new. Mm -hmm. And they're also educating people and showing that we're still here we're still here and it's just an added addition of our art our native american art and it doesn't need yeah. to always be specific to a medium because we're always growing as a culture and as i as we identify as native americans i think that's an important factor i think that's all also a help in my belief the, to the outside world when they're looking at us oh they just do clay they just do bees they just do this and this it's like no we're in part of a global society we take all the elements of everyday yeah. life and incorporate it into our art form and most of us do multiple art forms you might not mm -hmm. we might not enter it in art competitions you might not see it but um i can weave baskets i'm not going to enter a competition i'm not going to win i'm I can make a basic basket. It'll hold mm -hmm. my stuff, but. Um, well, you're, you're a true artist. <laughs> <laughs> but there's Are some there... things I'll trade with another artist before I'll try to make it myself. Yeah. I yeah. Can it, but I'm not going to do that. So we'll just trade. Are there any uh, poignant art pieces that you can really think about that you've done? That's like, that's, that's me. That's my soul. That's my DNA. That's my blood, sweat and tears. And. That's who I'm about as an artist. I think probably the one that I made that means the most to me is at the Cherokee National History Museum. Um, there are three figures. There is a war chief, a peace chief, and a beloved woman. And they approached me when the museum was uh, being built, mm -hmm. and they wanted 
wanted me to turn in a bid on those three figures. So I thought, oh, this is fantastic. And I had a war chief cape that I'd already made and uh, entered it in a few shows. I thought, okay, I'll you know kind of redo this, make the rest of the outfit. I said he needs, he's going to need a bow, and and I want Noel Grayson to make it, and arrows, and a ball head war club, and a quiver, and the beloved woman. She's going to need certain things. She needs a um, swan wing fan, and the peace chief. I wanted him to have a piece of wampum, a wampum belt. So mm-hmm. I just, some of the things I could do myself and I was pressed for time. So I just wrote out who I wanted to do them. And then I went home and messaged them and said, Hey, turn in a bid for this now. <laughs> <laughs> but I was really excited when that museum opened to have those three pieces there. Um, they've all got feather capes. They've got, uh, the, the woman has a twine skirt. Uh, the men are wearing uh, buckskin, and I was able to, when I saw the exhibit, everything I had asked for was in it. And there were a few things that added that if I'd thought of, it was the same people I would have suggested. So I'm really mm-hmm. proud of that exhibit. And that is kind of, because there's three pieces together and it's in a prominent position. That's one of my favorite pieces that means a lot to me. So would you say that, those pieces are the ones that have gotten the most attention from a wider audience as well? Or has there been some um, other kind of uh, pieces that you can think that have really made an impact to um, the outside world? Well, I do have one in the Smithsonian. So well, that's, that's kind of, <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of a, a big thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's, I mean, it's in the collection. It's not on display, but these three are on display and, mm-hmm. and they do get a lot of attention. But uh, when I was doing my research fellowship through the leadership, artist leadership program at NMAI, I used the, a picture of that feather cape in my presentation and it was on a poster. There, there was two pieces of art on it and there was mine and then a shell carving by one of the, the other participants. And they let me keep the poster and everything. Mm-hmm. So when I got home, I started thinking about it. I've still got that cape. I've won several prizes with it. And I wrote them an email said, Hey, you don't have very many Cherokee items here. You know, I did my, my research on Cherokee textiles and there's like nothing here to study. Do you want to buy my cape? <laughs> and they said, yes. <laughs> wow. So they acquired it. And uh, I kind of forgot about it. Um, <laughs> and we were up there in the collections and they said, do you want to see anything? You know, you could request ahead of time, any objects you want to see. And we're walking through the, touring the, the collections. And I said, oh yeah, I got a feather cape up here. We're wonder where it is. And, the guy that was leading us through kind of looked at me like, well, sure you do. And and I <laughs> described it and he left and he came back. He said, yeah, it's right up here. So <laughs> he climbed up on this ladder. It was way up. It's probably 10 feet from the floor. And he opened it up and he looked at me and said, you made that? I said, yeah. <laughs> it was kind of funny that, I mean, I can't believe I forgot it was there, but <laughs> Wow. I've never seen it there, so right. you know, it's hmm. just something I sold and shipped off. And <laughs> you make it sound yeah. so easy. <laughs> How long did that take you to actually create? Oh gosh, I'm getting where I can't work uh, consistently. I could probably make one in a week or so mm-hmm. if I could just sit and work on it all day every day, but. My hands start swelling. I start getting calluses. I start having all these. I'm sliding down on my chair. <laughs> I start having all these issues. So I have to alternate with different arts. So mm-hmm. it took me probably, gosh, that's been a while. Probably several weeks. If I get a commission for just the ladies' shorter cape, I ask for three weeks. Mm-hmm. But I'm usually so booked up that it's a while before I can get to it. I've got one right now I've been working on for quite a while, but when I took the order, 
I already had a lot of things ahead of it. So when I have downtime, I work on it. And they have, on average, oh, 800 feathers maybe. It depends on the size of them. Mm -hmm. The larger ones, I think the one I'm working on now is probably going to have 900 or 1,000. So I have to hand tie each one of those feathers. I have to sort them. I end up culling a lot of them. You soak the quills. You flatten it out. You fold it around a piece of wire, and then you're going to get your string and lash it down. Mm-hmm. And that's similar to tying fishing flies. And you have to do that over and over. I can do 80 in an hour if I put in a good movie and don't think about it. <laughs> kind of just zone out. So when you're creating, be it a, a feather cape or your pottery, What's your process? Do you draw it out? Do you just go from your mind to your hands and start creating? Um, do you do like a simple mock-up? Or, I mean, what, what's your process? I try to sketch it out. Mm-hmm. Um, my late friend, Shan Goshorn, as, she was a big influence on me to document everything, and Shan taught me to journal. So I try to at least sketch it out and take notes and write how many feathers, the dimensions, I try to keep notes on everything. So I do try to sketch them out ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, pottery, sometimes I'll just see where it wants to go. And sometimes it turns out totally different than what I intended. So do you just start creating and it starts morphing into its own identity, I guess, so to speak? Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I do sketch it out and know exactly. Like when I was working on sculpture with Bill Glass, I always knew what I wanted to do. I always had the sketch. And I had to keep really careful notes because when you mix up a glaze, it's white. Right. And you don't know what color it's going to fire till it's fired. So we would put drops of ink to distinguish one from another. So you could tell you might put red ink. So the glaze is pink, but you don't know which one. Mm-hmm. And, um, we have to. I had to keep careful notes which glaze I used on which part because when I come back a week later, I'm not going to remember anything. <laughs> but I do like to sketch it out. Now, when I paint, I don't sketch it out when I paint. I just start painting. Your so, mind and your hands start dictating your vision. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, it's kind of. I, I don't know. Everything's. I don't do things this. I don't always do everything. There's not a planned, I guess, yeah, you could say that. It's not a planned set criteria. When you start creating, you kind of just let the natural process take take hold of you. (laughs) Yeah, if I'm doing it just for fun, but if I, maybe I'll come up with, um, say there is an art competition coming up and I Mm -hmm. need to create something really cool for that. I will sketch it out and come up with my idea and the story behind it. like I have the one that I got second place at Cherokee Art Market on a, a pot called uh, Teleco Fishtail. Mm-hmm. And that was based on Teleco Lake where we we take a trip down there and do a living history job near Teleco Lake every year. And I had probably, oh, I bet I had 10 or 12 little fish drawn on it. And... Um, I I made the fish with symbols, um, symbols and designs from that area. So I was just like thinking of all those fish. The the lake flooded those towns, some very significant Cherokee towns. And I was just thinking that these are the symbols that were used in those towns, and now they're fish swimming around <laughs> and carrying on these symbols. So that one did. I sketched out the basic idea, but when I start decorating the fish, I'm just coming up with all kinds of wild ideas. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's kind of improvised, kind of planned. What would the best advice would you give someone that's in the youth that maybe have a natural calling or inspired by, by Lisa Rutherford? What would be your advice to them in getting involved in creating Native American art, be it pot, be being 
not pot, <laughs> being, <laughs> excuse me, pottery, uh, pottery, uh, pottery. <laughs> or cake making or, you know, shell carving or any, any form, what would your advice be to them? A lot of us are, are pretty willing to help. I mean, I've had a lot of, I've had a couple of uh, two or three girls contacted me and I've taught them to make a feather cape through messenger or text. Wow. And I've been more successful with those individuals that approach me like that. One is my friend's daughter. And I thought, okay, coming from that family, I know this girl can do it. And right. she did. She's made a couple more. So, uh, but yeah, just reach out to the artists. Uh, a lot of us are, will give you all the advice and tell you, do your research. Just keep researching, learning. Of course, now we have YouTube and you can learn to do practically anything, but right. go to your museum collections, um, archaeological surveys. I've, I've been studied several collections, apply for research fellowships, apply for artists in residence, just keep, uh, take classes. Mm -hmm. Like even you mentioned, though I've been, I'm sorry, go ahead. Even though I've been doing pottery for several years, probably about 17 I'll still take a pottery class from someone else because um, what I found that I will learn something new mm -hmm. and I'll probably teach them something new. I mean, so, that's what's going to be my question is, are you ever, are you finding yourself growing continuously and wanting to absorb and learn as you yeah. develop further and further into your craft? I am. Um, actually, I'm wanting to take a pottery class I'm not sure when it starts, but Troy Jackson is teaching a class. He does Raku, mm -hmm. and his work is very different. But I want to learn about stains and glazes and um, the Raku firing. So I'm going to try to get in that class. So Fantastic. And part of it's the fellowship with the other artists. Right. We all come in here and work together. Mm -hmm. A lot of uh, tribes, as we briefly talked about uh, previously, are trying to further their culture, their history, uh, language, the arts. Do you think it's an important factor that the tribal communities and nations actually develop maker studios? I really do. I think it's very important. And one interesting thing is that how the tribes are working together, or maybe not the tribes themselves, but the artists. Mm -hmm. um, I'm in a Choctaw fiber artist group. I'm not Choctaw, but they let me get in the group. and. Um, it's on Facebook. So, you know, we all share information mm -hmm. and I've taught down at the Chickasaw nation. Um, I mean, that's how we learned yeah. before our first contact is the inner communities and tribal communities interacting with each other and connecting with each other and sharing information. I mean, that's, I think that's a wonderful aspect for us to grow. You don't have to be just Choctaw, <laughs> you know, yeah. but learn from them. You know, I, again, as you mm -hmm. mentioned, Educating yourself and continuing to grow as a as an artist and a craftsman. And there are some non-native people that have uh, studied some of the arts, like the beadwork. Uh, they've done a lot of research. Uh, they're scholars, maybe. And um, when, like, when Martha Berry was trying to learn about the beadwork, she learned some of the things from non-native beadwork artists. But they had studied our beadwork. Um, don't discount them just because they're not native because mm -hmm. they might have some knowledge that they've saved or, or recorded that, that we've lost. Right. So what's next for Lisa Rutherford? Oh gosh. This weekend I'm doing the first Americans uh, museum winter holiday art market. And after that, I'm going to try to catch up on commissions. This whole year has been just, this has been my best year ever. I mean, I finally reached that point where I have time to work on the art. I did the artist in residence. I finished my studio. Um, we had good shows. I partnered with my, my friend is about at the same place in her art career. So mm -hmm. find a buddy to share expenses or travel with and, that's been really good for both of us. Um, we've traveled. Well, we all, we, we have a lot of elderly women that follow our adventures on Facebook because mm -hmm. apparently we're very entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> so there's that, but uh, just have fun with it. I just want to travel more. Um, do you set your do you set goals for yourself as an artist and as a creative? Or do you just let the natural energy uh, of your craft come out? I try and where to it set takes you, goals. it takes you. Mm-hmm. I sit down each morning with my coffee and my journal, and I I just I've got so many thoughts in my head. I just spill them all into the journal, and then I'm like, okay, I got to organize this. I've got all these upcoming things I need to do, and then I'll put it in like a chronological order. Then pick the priorities, and then it goes into the planner. On this day, you do this. This day, you... and then I also have another um, another page in the journal where I've got big picture. Uh, Long-term goals, mm-hmm. uh, short-term goals. So I've got lots of ideas, and I'll eventually get to them, but I have to keep writing them down or I will forget. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have quite a few uh, commission works that this have year, come to I've you? I've done eight, probably. I think I've done eight feather capes this year. Wow. And they're all commissioned because... Um, they take time away from my other arts, but I've done them for, oh gosh. I did one for an exhibit. I'm not sure if I did any tribal royalty this year. Yes, I did. I did Miss Cherokee. No, Miss Indian, Oklahoma. I've done so many I can't remember, but I've done uh, (laughs) two or three for weddings, for museum exhibits. Mm -hmm. Um, just, I can't, I can't even remember what all I'm working on one right now that I need to get finished and I'm just running behind. So that's been my biggest, uh, normally I don't really take commissions on anything, but the feather capes. I don't like to make someone else's idea. I want it to be my art and my idea. Right. Well, it's your story. It's just your story that you're, you're trying yeah. to tell, especially the piece that you're creating has a story of itself. So, mm-hmm. Where can uh, listeners find Lisa Rutherford pieces? Mostly at the Spider Gallery here in Tahlequah. Okay. So I've got a few pieces in there. I, I try to keep the gallery stocked. Uh, they've been good to me, so I always want to keep when I noticed that like after the holiday, a lot of people, they sold a lot. A lot of people had pulled their art out for other shows. So mm-hmm. I always try to take care of them and keep them stocked because they've been good to me. Um, I'll be at first Americans museum in Oklahoma city this weekend, December 3rd and 4th. And I'm hoping, well, I haven't applied for that one yet. So I probably shouldn't mention it. Yet, <laughs> Don't jinx it. Don't jinx it. So do you have any exhibits going on? Any any permanent exhibits that you're a part of? Um, just the one in the uh, Cherokee National History Museum. Mm-hmm. And let's see. I've got a, a coat in the Sam Houston Museum. I made really? Sam Houston. I think I made him a shirt and a coat. Huh. I'm not sure what all I made. For <laughs> You'll have to check yeah. your journal. <laughs> yeah. Uh, now, do you go out to the outside world and, and involve yourself in the various art markets? I, I, I know you, I've seen you at two, but all the other uh, festivals uh, nationally that happen year round. Now that I've the world's to, opened back up. Yeah. We go to the Idol Jordan museum in Indianapolis every, um, every June. And, mm-hmm. I haven't done Santa Fe for the last few years. It's just, I, I may do it again, but it's a lot of work. Mm-hmm. And I don't like getting up at four in the morning, but <laughs> we've done Santa Fe. Um, I'm learning, things are changing locally. So we were talking the other day and there are several good Indian art markets here in Oklahoma. So you don't really have to leave. Chickasaw Nation has two, and mm-hmm. the Muskogee Nation has one. They started in at River Spirit Casino, and I'm going to apply for that one. Um, we have the Cherokee Art Market, of course. So we're getting a lot more 
pretty lucrative markets here where we don't have to travel so much. Right. But I've traveled, like for my living history, I have traveled to Colonial Williamsburg. I've been on contract with them a few times. And um, that's always fun to uh, get to experience a living history village. Absolutely. You know, another stay. Do, do, does. <laughs> do the nations help artists promote themselves in further expanding the knowledge about Native American culture and artistry? I think Cherokee Nation does a really good job through our cultural tourism department. They have uh, several of the sites. Of course, we have several museums now, and they will have Cherokee days. Like I got to demonstrate up at Eastern Trails Museum in Vanita. It was just a one-day thing. And then, of course, we've got the Anna Mitchell Welcome Center also in Vanita. Mm-hmm. And I did a demonstration up there. So um, being a Cherokee National Treasure, they promote us a lot. Uh, a lot of the treasures are elders. So I'm one of the, probably one of the younger ones. So <laughs> I'm still able to get around and travel and demonstrate. And I don't mind being on on camera or radio or whatever. So mm-hmm. I'm not. Uh, you know, I, I don't get nervous talking to a crowd, so I do get to demonstrate and present at a lot of events like that. But they will have several artists demonstrating and um, activities for kids usually, so they do quite a bit. Right. But their focus is tourism, though, and not really art, so we're just kind of a... Um, An added addition, yeah. so to speak, yeah. Yeah, which they do a great job, and we do really appreciate them. Fantastic. Is there anything that you would like to bring up or discuss or share or promote? For once, I'm at a loss for words. (laughs) Um, No, I just want to encourage people, especially here at the holiday season, to support your Native artists. There are different art markets, a lot of smaller art markets I know around uh, in December. I think there's one in Tulsa. Um, the um, I forgot what it's called. I can't remember now, but it's the same weekend, next weekend, same as our winter holiday art market. But yeah, support your native artists. Buy the art from them. You'll get something unique. Um, artists really put their heart into what they're making and I think a gift, handmade gift, is a lot more meaningful. True, true. And it's it's unique, and its its purpose is to be functional, but it also, I think, is a item that could be a legacy item too. And you're telling a story, and you're it can speak to you for the purchaser, yeah. so to speak. As an artist, do you think there's factors that prevent you or limits? limits you or um, encourages you to create? Hmm. Well, we do, since a lot of my art forms are based on historic arts, Mm -hmm. um, we face problems like uh, access to natural resources, um, like workspace sometimes. We don't have a good workspace like we have this, the art center, but we don't really have a, a good secure outdoor space where we can work uh, and work all day. And I'm always conscious of, well, we, you know, if we're building a fire, is some, someone going to walk by here and <laughs> damage our art or get right. something? Um, There's just not a really good space for things like that. But yeah, there are some, some things that are kind of holding us back. But um, we do get a lot of support. We, I, I feel like our tribe supports us quite a bit. and They might not totally understand the needs of an artist. And I think right. sometimes um, it's easy to underestimate what we know how to do. I mean, we know the history. We've researched our particular art. So we know what it's capable of. We know uh, how how to display it, how to install it. And I think sometimes 
uh, that gets overlooked, especially if you hire an outside firm to install art, say at a casino or a, a one of the buildings. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're sitting back saying, well, why didn't you just ask me? I could tell you how to do that. <laughs> Involve the creator, so to speak. <laughs> yeah. So I think that's starting to, to change a little bit. And I mean, after all, we know that art form better than anyone. So. Exactly. Um, it's created by the hands, <laughs> your hands. Yeah. Well, thank you, Lisa. I've thoroughly enjoyed it and I appreciate your time and being part of a Beyond the Art. Um, is there anything else you'd like to add or share with us? Well, then just thank you for having me here. This has been fun and, and I like, um, I appreciate the chance of getting to meet a new audience and, right. and, and to share our culture. Mm-hmm.